0: Everyone, welcome back to the audiobook fifth episode of uh, Gone Girl, written by Gillian Flynn, and uh, I'm your narrator, Srijan. Starting with the next part of story, the next uh, day of. I waited for the police first in the kitchen. But the acrid smell of the burnt tea kettle was curling up in the back of my throat, underscoring my need to reach. So I drifted out on the front porch, sat on the top stair and willed myself to be calm. I kept trying Amy's call and it kept going to voicemail. That click, cadence, swearing should phone right back. Amy always phoned right back. It had been three hours and... I'd left five messages and Amy had not phoned back. I didn't expect her to. I'd tell the police, Amy would never have left the house with the tea kettle on or the door open or anything waiting to be ironed. The women got shit done and she was not one to abandon a project even if she decided she didn't like it. She'd made a grim figure on the Fiji beach. During a two week honeymoon, battling her way through a million mystical pages of the Wend Up Bird Chronicle, casting pissy glances at me as I devoured thriller after thriller. Since I moved back to Missouri, the loss of her job, her life had revolved devolved around the completion of endless, tiny, inconsequential. Uh, projects. The dress would have been ironed, and there was the living room, signs pointing to a struggle. I already knew Amy wasn't phoning back. I wanted the next part to start. It was the best time of day. The July sky cloudless, the slowly settling sun a spotlight on the east, turning everything golden and lush, a flemish painting bullies rolled up. It felt casual, me sitting on the steps, an evening bird singing in the tree. These two cops getting out of their car at a leisure pace, as if they were dropping by a neighborhood picnic. Kid cops, mid-twenties, confident and uninspired, accustomed to soothing worried parents of curfew-busting teens, a Hispanic girl, her hair in long, dark braid, and a black guy with a Marine's stance. Carthage had become a bit less Caucasian while I was away. But it was still so severely segregated that the only people of color I saw in my daily routine tended to be occupational roamers, delivery men, medics, postal workers, cops, this place is so white, it's disturbing," said Amy, who, back in the melting pot of Manhattan, counted a single African-American among her friends. I accused her of craving ethnic window dressing minorities as t- backdrops. It did not go well. Mr. Dunn, I am Officer Velasquez, said the woman, and the says Officer Riordan. We understand you're concerned about your wife. Riordan looked down the road, sucking on a piece of candy. I could see his eyes follow a darting bird out over the river. Then he snapped his gaze back toward me, his curled lip telling me he saw what everyone else did. I have a face you want to punch. I'm a working class Irish kid trapped in the body of a total trust fund douchebag. I smile a lot to make up for my face, but this only sometime works. In college, I even wore glasses for a bit. Fake spectacles with clear lenses that I thought would lend me an affable, unthreatening vibe. You do realize that uh, makes you even more of a dick? Go reason. I threw them out and smiled harder. I waved in the cops come inside the house and say." The two climbed the steps, accompanied by the squeaking and shuffling noises of their bells and guns, I stood in the entry to the living room and pointed at the destruction. "'Oh!' said Officer Riordan, and gave a brisk crack of his knuckles. He suddenly looked less bored. Riordan and Velasquez leaned Forward in their seats at the dining room table as they asked me all the initial questions who, where, how long. Their ears were literally pricked. A call had been made out of hearing. Riordan informed me that detectives were being dispatched. I had the grave pride of being taken seriously. Riordan was asking me for the second time if I'd seen any strangers in the neighborhood lately. Was reminding me for the third time about Kataj's roving bands of homeless men when the phone rang. I launched myself across the room and grabbed it. A surely woman's voice. Mr. Dunn, this is Comfort Hill, assisted living. It was where Go and I boarded our Alzheimer's riddled father. I can't talk right now. I'll call you back. I snapped and hung up. I despised the women who staffed Comfort Hill on smiling and underpaid, gruelingly underpaid which was probably why they never smiled or comforted. I knew my anger toward them was misdirected. It absolutely infuriated that my father lingered on while my mom was in the ground. It was ghost on to send the cheque. I was pretty sure it was ghost on for July and I am sure she was positive it was mine. We had done this before. Go said we must be mutually subliminally forgetting those mails to checks. That what we really wanted to forget was our dad. I was telling Riordan about the strange man I'd seen in our neighbor's vacated house when the doorbell rang. The doorbell rang, it sounded so normal like I was expecting a pizza. The two detectives entered with end of shift weariness. The man was rangy and thin, with a face that tapered severely into a dribble of a chin. The woman was surprisingly ugly, brazenly beyond the scope of everyday ugly. Tiny round eyes, set tight as buttons, A long twist of her nose, skin spackled with tiny bumps, long lank hair the colour of a dust bunny. I have an affinity for ugly women. I was raised by a trio of women who were hard on the eyes. My grandmother, my mom, her sister, and they were all smart and kind and funny and sturdy. Good, good women. Amy was the first pretty girl I ever dated. Really dated. The ugly woman spoke first, and a coughed Miss Officer Velasquez. Mr. Dunn? I'm Detective Ron DeBonnie. This is my partner, Detective Jim Gelfin. We understand there are concerns about your wife. My stomach growled loud enough for us all to hear it, but we pretended we didn't. We take a look around, sir, Kilpin said. He had fleshy bags around his eyes and scraggly white whiskers in his moustache. His shirt wasn't wrinkled, but he wore it like it was. He looked like he should stink of cigarettes and sour coffee, even though he didn't. He smelled like a dial soap. I led them a few short steps to the living room pointed once again at the wreckage where the two younger cops were kneeling carefully as if waiting to be discouraged doing something useful. Boni steered me toward a chair in the dining room, away from, but in view of the signs of struggle. Ronda Boni walked me through the same basics i had told Velasquez and Riordan. Her attentive sparrow eyes on me. Gilpin squatted down on a knee Assessing the living room. Have you found friends or family people your wife might be with? Ronda Bonnie asked. I. No, not yet. I guess I was waiting for y'all. Ah, she smiled. Let me guess, baby of the family. What? You are the baby. I have a twin sister, I sense some internal judgement being made why Amy's favourite vase was lying on the floor, intact, bumped up against the wall. It was a welding present or Japanese masterwork that Amy put away each week when our house cleaner came, because she was sure it would get smashed. Just a guess of mine, why you would wait for us? You're used to someone else of always taking lead. Bonnie said. That's what my little brother is like. It's a birth order thing. She scribbled something on a notepad. Okay. I gave an angry shrug. Do you need my sun sign too? Or can we get started? Bonnie smiled at me kindly waiting. I waited to do something because I mean she's obviously not with a friend. I said, pointing at the disarray in the living room. You've lived here. What must have done two years? She asked. Two years. September. Moved from where? New York. City? Yes. She pointed upstairs, asking permission without asking, and I nodded and followed her. Gilpin following me. I was a writer there. I blurted out before I could stop myself. Even now, two years back here, and I couldn't hear. Where for someone to think this was my only life? Bony. Sounds impressive. Gilpin. Of what? I timed my answer to my stair climbing. I wrote for it. Magazine. I wrote about pop culture for men's magazine. At the top of the stairs, I turned to Gilpin looking back at the living room. He snapped up. Pop culture, he called up as he began climbing. What exactly does that entail? Popular culture, I said. We reached the top of the stairs, Bony waiting for us. Movies, TV, music. But uh, you know, not high art, nothing highfalutin. I was highfalutin. How patronizing! You two bumpkins probably need me to translate my English, comma, educated East Coast into English, comma, Midwest foxy. Me do some scribbling of stuffs I get in my noggin after watching them moving pictures. She loves movies, Gilpin said, gesturing toward Bonnie. Bonnie nodded. I do. Now I own the bar downtown, I added. I taught a class at the junior college too, but to add that suddenly felt too needy. I wasn't on a date. Booney was peering into the bathroom, halting me and Gilpin in the hallway. The bar? She said, I know the place, been meaning to drop by, Love the name, very meta. Sounds like a smart move, Gilpin said. Bonnie made for the bedroom and we followed. A life surrounded by beer ain't too bad. Sometimes the answer is at the bottom of a bottle. I said, then winced again at the inappropriateness. We entered the bedroom. Gilpin laughed. Don't I know that feeling? See how the iron is still on? I began. Bonnie nodded, opened the door of her roomy closet and walked inside, filming on the light, fluttering her latexed hands over shirts and dresses. As she moved towards the back, she made a sudden noise, bent down, turned around, holding a perfectly square box, covered in elaborate silver wrapping. My stomach ceased. Someone's birthday? She asked. It's our anniversary. Bony and Gilpin both twitched like spiders and pretended they didn't. By the time we returned to the living room, the kid officers were gone. Gilpin got down on his knees, eyeing the overturned ottoman. Uh, I'm a little freaked out, obviously. I started. I don't blame you at all, Nick, Gilpin said earnestly. He had pale blue eyes that jittered in place an unnerving tick. Can we do something to find my wife? I mean, because she's clearly not here. Bonnie pointed at the wedding portrait on the wall, me in my tux, a block of teeth frozen on my face, my arms curved firmly around Amy's waist. Amy, her blonde hair tightly coiled and sprayed, her wheel blowing in the beach breeze of Cape Cod, her eyes open too wide because She always blinked at the last minute and she was trying so hard not to blink. The day after Independence Day, the sulphur from the fireworks mingling with the ocean's salt, summer. The cape had been good to us. I remember discovering several months in that Amy, my girlfriend, was also a quite wealthy, a treasured only child of uh, creative genius parents, an icon of sorts. Thanks to a namesake book series that I thought I could remember as a kid. Amazing Amy. Amy explained this to me in calm, measured tones. As if I were a patient waking from a coma. As if she'd had to do it too many times before and it had gone badly. The admission of wealth that's greeted with too much enthusiasm. The disclosure of a secret identity that she herself didn't create. Amy told me who and what she was and then we went to the Elliot's historically registered home on Nantucket Sound went sailing together and I thought, I'm a boy from Missouri flying across the ocean with people who have seen much more than I have. If I began seeing things now, living back, I could still not catch up with them. It didn't make me feel jealous. It made me feel content. I never aspired to wealth or fame. I was not raised by big dreamer parents who pictured their child as a future president. I was raised by a pragmatic parents who pictured their child as a future officer worker of some sort making a living of some sort. To me, it was a heady enough to be in Elliot's proximity, to skim across the Atlantic and return to a plushy restored home built in 1822 by a whaling captain, and there to prepare and eat meals of organic, healthful foods, whose name I didn't know how to pronounce. Quanova. I remember thinking quanova was kind of a fish. So we married on the beach on a deep blue summer day, ate and drank under a white tent that billowed like a sail and a few hours in, I sneaked Amy off into the dark, toward the waves because I was feeling so unreal, I believed I had become merely shimmer, the chill mist on my skin pulled me back, Amy pulled me back. Toward the golden glow of the tent where the gods were feasting, everything ambrosia. Our whole courtship was just like that. Boney leaned in to examine me. Your wife is very pretty. She is. She's beautiful, I said, and felt my stomach lilt. What anniversary today? she asked. Five. I was jittering from one foot to another, wanting to do something. I didn't want them to discuss how lovely my wife was. I wanted them to go out and search for my fucking wife. I didn't say this out loud though. I often don't say things out loud, even when I should. I contain and compartmentalize to a disturbing degree. In my belly basement are hundreds of bottles of rage, despair, fear, but you'd never guess from looking at me. Five. Big one. Let me guess. Reservations at Houston's? Gilpin asked. It was the only upscale restaurant in town. You all really need to try Houston's, my mom had said when we moved back, thinking it was Carthage's unique little secret, hoping... It might please my wife. Of course Houston's. It was it it was my fifth lie to the police. I was just starting.